round off this series in Daniel, God is in control. So the next couple of weeks, I will endeavor to do my best to give us the clearest picture of what Daniel is about. And um, I've been told that Daniel 11 is incredibly hard to teach from. And uh, again, even as I was reading some of my commentaries, many people have said that this is probably, again, one of those least taught on chapters. And so, um, <clears throat> strange enough, just to kind of see what was going on and all this, I'd done a search on YouTube for Daniel 11 and those who've taught upon it. And the strangest thing that came up was that it was only Calvary pastors that actually had this chapter talking, you know, Dave Guzek, John Corson, it's like strange. So it was like those guys that do line upon line, as we do here, um, make sure that those least taught upon chapters get, get something. And so again, um, it's my privilege again to be able to continue that trend and teach on one of those least taught on chapters. So I'm going to do, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I want to read through the text bit by bit. I want to kind of track the history with the text as just a way of showing the accuracy of what God is doing. So what I want to do is I want to pray and then kind of step by step go through the text with you. Um, and then hopefully, again, you'll be all the more clearer as to what's going on in Daniel 11. So let me, let me pray, and um, we'll jump right in. So Father, we are so thankful again that when we go through your word, even those most difficult parts of your word, the, the genealogies there, Lord God, and, uh, and as such, Lord, we are thankful that, again, we've realized that your word has been written to bring edification there, Lord God, to your people, no matter what time they live in. And so, Lord, as we come humbly there, Lord God, to be fed from your word, we pray that you will do so today. Help us there, Lord God. Help me because, Lord, uh, again, I have that task of, as it were, transmitting that which I believe is, is your word there, Lord God. But help us as well to receive, Lord, to make use of this in our lives. We know that your spirit is here as a comforter as well, as a teacher, so that, Lord God, again, we want to rely on the full working of your power there, Lord God, today. So again, have your way there, Lord, we pray, and um, see us through there, Lord, this series um, that we're learning about you and your sovereignty, your control over the events of history. And as we do so there, Lord God, humble our hearts, Lord, to see the bigness of our God. And I think if anything, dear Lord, we leave here today, Lord, I pray that that picture of our God in control, like Jesus being in the boats with the disciples who, was, who, who barked at them when they were, um, you know, unable to kind of understand that when, when, when God is in the boat with them, all is going to be well. May we always, likewise, oh God, no matter how much the storm is raging outside, draw comfort from the fact that, Lord God, you are actually here in the midst of history with us. So thank you, Lord, for loving your people and loving your world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me, I kind of entitled today, um, maybe you won't grasp how I have called it, it's one of those strange titles, but 
Today I've called it Between Memphis and a Hard Case. Between Memphis and a Hard Case. So let me kind of start with an introduction of where I think this text is going. And it, and it kind of reminded me of the days when I first started filling in application forms, my late teens and such, where you come to the end of the application form and you get that bit of ethnicity. Now, I always found it quite weird what to do because to some extent I, w I was aware that both my parents came from the Caribbean. But at the same time, I couldn't quite claim a Caribbean heritage because I'd never set foot on any Caribbean island at that time. I'd grown up, obviously, in, in Britain, but at the same time, I didn't feel fully British. When I looked at my, the way that I did you know, certain things, I, I liked my afternoon cup of tea and my biscuit, a tea cake, maybe. Well, we actually quite often, more often than not now. <laughs> so there was very, very many ways in which I felt very English. But when it came to things like pets and, you know, cats all over you and dogs in the bed and that kind of stuff, <laughs> I was not very English at all. I found myself being very much of the Caribbean, dog is for the yard. <laughs> there can be a tension in our identity, a genuine tension. And the truth is, is that often we don't want to break that tension for fear of losing our true selves. That tension, I think, is reflected in the book of Daniel as well. Of being in this world, but also being drawn to a world yet to come. A world in which we feel incredibly familiar with. A world in which we find, as it were, especially for those who come to Christ, we feel our, 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 we are climatized to that world more than this one. The world in which we currently inhabit has had a role in nurturing us, but is still unable to meet our needs, all of our needs at least. It kind of reminds me of, again, the fact that a British beach can't compare to a Caribbean one, right? In our bodies, we may feel at home. But our soul is restless for its true home. As Daniel finds himself as an exile in a foreign land and caught between the world that is and the world to come, so we also may see ourselves as transitioning to the kingdom of God as a pilgrim in our current land. Let us look at, jump into our text. But before I kind of start reading the first verse, uh, I kind of want to describe, so what do, what's actually happening in chapter 11? And I think before we go kind of jump in there, I want to jump back to chapter 7. 
And in chapter 7, Daniel makes a particular request. And I want to read that for you in your hearing. It says that I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast that was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth and that spoke great things, that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So I think what's going on here is that as we move into Daniel 11, is that and as we've already seen in, in, in some of the chapters running up to chapter 11, is that God is giving Daniel greater clarity to his request. I want to know what this horn is. And so what was given to him, maybe very in very veil, veiled and vague terms, is now being expressed in very definite terms, as we will see as we go through this chapter. So let me start with the first two verses. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And I will show you the truth. Behold, more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than them all, than all of them. And when he has become strong, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So let me stop there. The stirring up of the Greeks is normally linked to Xerxes, who was indeed the fourth king, Xerxes I. And his failed invasion of Greece. What was remarkable about this particular invasion of Greeks, for those who've seen the movie 300, that's the kind of the depiction of what was actually happening. He, he gathers this massive army, which the text alludes to, to invade Greece. The Battle of Thermopylae that is being portrayed in 300 is about how the Spartans, in particular, stood against Xerxes, This creates the ground in which Greek unity will come. Greek and Macedonian unity will come. Because before, Greeks were what you call city-states. They were nations within themselves. They had nothing to do. In fact, most of the Greeks fought amongst themselves. In particularly, Sparta and Athens. Now, when Xerxes comes and invades, it creates the grounds for Greek unity. Well, we've got to come together, haven't we? We've got to put aside our differences and now come together. And this will come into fruition 150 years later when Alexander the Great now comes and creates a united Greece. 
What I find remarkable about this is that God pinpoints in this particular, in, in, this, in just this one verse, the seed of the next empire being formed in the midst of the current one. And we will see this again when the Greeks will also stir up the Romans. And so this event is important because this fourth king now is going to create, as it were, the third beast. Let's move on. Verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. So verses 3 and 4, little doubt here that this is referring to Alexander the Great. Little doubt. His sudden death in his early 30s or 32, as many claim, gave way to four of his generals taking over his empire, known as the Didachoi or the, the Diakoi. On to verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and he shall rule, and his authority shall be a greater authority. So now this is where it gets interesting. So um, verse 34, 3 and 4 kind of covers the area of 334 BC to 301 BC. Now we move to 323 to 281 BC. The story then narrows on focus, so it then moves away from, well, who, is, who are these four generals? And our focus is on two particular generals. The first is the Ptolemaic Empire, which was ruled in the south, which is called the Southern Kingdom, and was ruled from Egypt. The second is the Seleucid Empire, and it is in the north and is ruled from Syria or Babylon. Ptolemy I, the king of the south, helped Seleucus I become king of the Syrio-Babylonian Empire. So that's what it refers to. That empire was hostile. And so he joined forces. This general joins forces with Ptolemy I and says, let's help me conquer this land. And he does. But this land that he conquers, the Syrio-Babylon Empire, is much larger than the Egyptian one. So as, he, as Seleucus I gains this empire, he then becomes a rival to Ptolemy, the very man who allowed him to take control. This now begins 150 years of war between the two dynasties. The reason why the Bible now narrows down to these two particular dynasties must be attributed to the fact that 
the Palestine-Judea border that both of these, so, the, so Palestine and Judea are the border between these two empires. So the Bible now focuses on them because this is where his people are inhabited. And these two generals will have the greatest impact on what happens in Jerusalem. And that's why God, I believe, narrows his focus on his people, on these two men who, again, are, are, are on the, literally on the border of Palestine to each other. Verse 6. After some years, they shall make an alliance. So let's have peace, basically. And the daughter of the king of the south of Egypt shall come to the king of the north to make an, an, an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. So what does this speak of? Well, Ptolemy II now. So after Ptolemy I, Ptolemy II says, well, come on, let's have peace. And he gives his daughter Bernice to Antiochus II in marriage, which is intended to end the war between the two regions. However, the deposed wife, so in order to marry Bernice, Antiochus II gets rid of his wife in order to marry them. So Laodice then assassinates Antiochus II. So, again, this is the very epitome of a woman scorned, right? She then kills her husband. She kills Bernice and the son that they have together. All in aid of Laodice being able to put her own son on the throne. So this is the, the breaking of the strength of the hand, the, the, um, the one that was supporting her, obviously being the king, is now gone. So she restores Seleucus II onto the throne. So the arm of unity, which should have ended the rivalry, is brought to, a, you know, again, brought to an end by a woman who has said, I'm not going to have this. Seven and nine. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place, and he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refine he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So what's happening here? Well, Ptolemy III now, the brother of Bernice, comes to the throne. And now, obviously, he's screwing. You've killed my sister. And so he decides to invade Syria in retaliation. And he succeeds. So Ptolemy III, the brother of Bernice, in retaliation, invades the Seleucid territory of Seleucus II and plunders it and basically takes everything. Let's move on. 10. 
His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again, and shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. Then the multitude is taken and when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. So again, this is the revenge of the Seleucids. Antiochus III then starts another war with the Ptolemies by invading Palestine this time, but loses to Ptolemy IV. When you kind of read this, it kind of gives you that issue of what's going on in gang violence, right, isn't it? This whole idea of when people just can't let things go. <laughs> that you just got this age-old rivalry going on. And then people won't even really understand where it all started. Verses 13 to 16. For the king of the north shall again arise, a multitude greater than the first. So now he's going to get a, get a bigger army. And after some years he shall come with a greater army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, that is Egypt. And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But it shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw a siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with, the destru with destruction in his hands. For his hand. So now Antiochus III, having suffered this defeat, now raises a massive army, as I said, or as the text says. And he takes advantage of the fact that Egypt at this present time is in a civil war, which what the text also alludes to. Plus, Ptolemy V is a child king. What a better time to try and win a war when you've got an inexperienced king and you've got internal struggles in Egypt. So Antiochus III, rather than leave this to his children, says, now's the time to reinvade the land and win. He then wins a major battle in Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon, and gives him control of the border regions of the Phoenicia and Palestine from the Ptolemies. And this is, again, the reference to the glorious land, the glorious land being in Jerusalem and Palestine. And now this is the first time the, Sel the Seleucids win the territory of Jerusalem from the Ptolemies. 17 to 19. And he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand, 
or be to his advantage. Afterwards, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So what is this one talking about? Again, we're in that region of 196 to 187 BC now. So in order to gain control of Egypt now, he's won this, this battle in Palestine. Antiochus III gives his daughter, Cleopatra I, to the child king of Ptolemy V. This is what is mentioned, he shall give his daughter to the women to destroy the kingdom. So now Cleopatra I is a sabotage tool. She's thinking that this older Cleopatra I will be able to tell the king what to do. The intent that his daughter will win the kingdom back, to win the kingdom for him, backfires. And Cleopatra becomes loyal to the Ptolemies. So now she becomes fully Egyptian. She, her loyalty actually goes to Egypt rather than to her dad. But it not stand to his advantage, alludes to that. As a side note, it is also worth noting that we, we should not, as much as people can be accused of whitewashing history, we've also got to be careful of not blackwashing history too. Cleopatra I is obviously Greek. After his failure to capture the Egyptian throne, Antiochus then turns his attention to Thrace and Crete. So this is the island lands. He will turn to the coastlands, but fails to conquer any territory in Europe due to the superior might of Rome. Now the Romans enter the scene. And the Romans come and basically say, uh-uh. You ain't taking anything over here. Furthermore, the Romans put the full cost of the war on Antiochus III. So you've made us come out over here to win this war against you. So now the full cost of the war comes upon you. So everything he's gained, all the successes he's by, by defeating the Egyptian, um, the Egyptian Greeks, by, um, again, winning over the, um, Jerusalem and Palestine, all that money, all that plunder he has now lost. The Romans pretty much take it. On top of that, he takes his children, or one of his sons, as a hostage and brings them back to Rome. Upon coming back to his homeland, he is killed whilst trying to rob a temple in order to recoup his lost fortunes. And that's what is alluded to when he says, then he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So he fails. I call that section an island too far, after the bridge too far. When a man sets his ambition so wide that sometimes you need to just count, you know, count your victories and go. But now we stirred up the Romans. And now we see that new seed 
growing where the Romans are thinking, hey, man, we've beat the Greeks. And now their confidence is no doubt growing. Verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an, an, an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So now these verses depict Antiochus' successor, Seleucus IV. Now he's inherited an impoverished kingdom. And he's, so he now raises what we now call modern times tax collector. We need money. Out comes the tax collector. So Heliodorus is this tax collector, and he is sent to extract tax from the people of Jerusalem. So as Seleucus still needed to recover from his father's debts, so he continues where his father met his end by robbing temples. So obviously in this time, all the treasures, all the, all the great treasures of most people were in the temples. Those were their, their, those were their places of worship. That's where the money would be found. So Heliodorus, Heliodorus finally turns on Seleucus and has him assassinated. So the tax man. Think of it like this way. It's where Rishi Sunak now turns on Boris. Turns on him and now takes, moves him out of the way. And that's why he says that he is broken neither in anger nor in battle. Now we move to a bigger section. I want to read from 21 to 35. So bear with me as I go through this. Um, because now we have the rise of the Antichrist, the Antiochus. So verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his father, his fathers nor his father's fathers have done. Scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break, shall break him his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed, and he shall return to his land with great wealth. But his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the appointed time, he shall return and come into the south, 
but it shall not be to be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and it shall be, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and and fortresses, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, as they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Now we come to the man himself, the pivotal figure of this prophecy. To some extent, everything that has happened basically is now bringing us to this particular man. The goodness of our God is that he kind of charts the whole history that leads to the point that makes this man possible. Because it would be him, the Jews in particular, would need to be aware of. So verse 21 indeed proves to be true because Antiochus was not in line for the throne. And he doesn't, but he does manage to remove his rivals. So remember, his nephews is still in Rome as hostage. So they can't come and claim the throne. Or at least one of them are. So he usurps the throne through political intrigue. And it is worth noting here that um, Cleopatra I is Antiochus' sister, and his nephew, who obviously, and his nephew, obviously Ptolemy IV, is now ruling in Egypt. Sorry, Ptolemy V is now ruling in Egypt. And may refer to, you know, and so he, this this king of a small, of a, of a small um, country may be referring to King Eumenes II of Pergamum, who backed him in his bid for the throne. So verse 24 speaks to the erratic nature of Antiochus and builds a picture of him also becoming known as the madman, which was a pun on his own title of the manifest one. I can't help thinking of, um, was it that guy who called himself the special one? <laughs> yeah, Mourinho, the special one. Yeah. <laughs> Made me think of that. Uh, so he calls himself the manifest one, but the Jews called him the madman. As a means to regain his wealth, he will plunder his own territory. So remember, the, 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 the nation is still skint. So in order to gain this, he now needs to mount another war. So verse 25 now puts the resumption of war with the Ptolemies back in focus. However, this war will not be started by Antiochus, but by his nephew, sorry, Ptolemy VI, who wants to begin 
a campaign against his uncle in order to regain the lost territory of Palestine. So now they want to regain their border town. Antiochus gets wind of the plans and decides to strike first. So even before Ptolemy can set his battle array in, 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 in position, Antiochus IV comes into play and says, I'm going to, use, I'm going to get there first. He successively defends his territory. So he wins the battle in Palestine. So in verse 26 and 27, he begins a plot to install his nephew as regent in Egypt, but having himself as the real power behind the throne. So now he's talking to his nephew, Ptolemy VI. So yeah, you can stay in power, but I will be the real power behind the throne, he is saying. However, again, this plot fails when Ptolemy VII, his brother of Ptolemy VI, and Cleopatra II, um, the brother of Ptolemy VI as well, join forces against their uncle with the backing of Rome and force him out of Egypt. So he tried to divide the, 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 brothers, the brothers and the sister against each other, but they all decided, basically, let's plot against our uncle and we'll rule Egypt together. So the family, the royal family of Egypt, come together and oust their uncle out. But this is done because they also have these children, these, 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 nieces, these nieces and nephews of theirs, have Rome back in Egypt. And that's the reason why they're able to muscle their uncle out. In verse 28, Antiochus returns to um, Syria after plundering Egypt, but having failed to win the empire. So now he's got his tail between his legs. Verse 29 then captures the next chapter of the, the Seleucid-Ptolemy War. This time, it's 168 BC. Antiochus tries to take the Ptolemy Empire by force, but is stopped by a superior Roman army. This is the ships of Kittim. Verse 30 um, Antiochus is completely humbled by the Romans when he is offered an ultimatum in which he could, be which he could not refuse. Here's an offer that he can't refuse. Again, this famous um, scene in history is that the Roman commander comes out, draws a circle around Antiochus IV and says, decide before you walk out of this circle what you're going to do. The, the superior Roman navy has already made his mind up for him. I can't win this war. And so he leaves again, having failed to take Egypt. This event now marks the ascent of Rome as the new major power in the Middle East and Europe. Rome is firmly on the map now. Heading back home with his tail between his legs, he stops up at Jerusalem in order to plunder it again. Again, when you lose these wars, it costs. You've lost. You lose money. You lose soldiers, obviously. How's he going to regain it? 
He, as part of his plan, he wants to now humble the region. So at this point in history, Jerusalem is a hot point of rebellions. At this time, there is a war between the Jews. Some are getting Hellenized, as it were. They're, they're becoming more Greek, whilst others want to remain faithful to the covenant, want to retain their Jewish identity. And so there is war there, and so to stop the wars and the rebellions, he now wants to humble the region. And again, you've got to put it, and, and I, I guess the way that helped me as I pictured this in my mind is that you've just lost, you've just had this ultimatum put to you. You're now humbled because you know, you now, you, can't, you, you, know, you now know you can't defeat the Romans. So now you come to this little region and you want to be the big man. I can't win there, but you know what? I'm going to win here. So he wants to put the nation that he's recently won completely under his control. And through the Hellenized high priesthood, so at this point, the, the, the Seleucid kings have been appointing their own high priests. Anyone who was willing to pay the price, they were now putting them and through the high priest, he was controlling the Jewish people. You might also say, I guess in our own times, a, a, a more liberal bishopric. Anyone who was willing to pretty much um, succeed to the state, its power, then he was willing to put that person in there. So through the Hellenized high priest Menelaus, Antiochus showed favor to those Jews who were willing to abandon their Jewish heritage in favor of a Greek one. So now he makes the state such that the only people that can get ahead in Jerusalem or in Judea were those who were submitted to Greek culture. You need to, be, you need to submit to this new Greek culture or there is no position for you. This then led to an all-out war on those Jews who would not submit to his decree. You know, render to Antiochus what is Antiochus, but to God what is God, right? But they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to render to Antiochus that which actually belonged to God. So in order to bring this to a full, to a full head, Antiochus then stopped any observance of the Jewish religion like the Sabbath days and the festivals. He also repurposed the temple to be a shrine for Zeus. And he also slaughtered a pig on a temple altar. So this is his way of saying, there is no going back to being Jews. This is the way it is. Greek or no way. Thirty-two to 35 then shows us, enter the Maccabees. If I want to sum up one of the themes of Daniel, namely, what do the faithful do when they are tempted to go astray, then this one verse does this well, which is, again, what we just read. He shall seduce them with flattery. Those who violate the covenant, though, so those who are submitting the covenant, those who have become Greek at the cost of abandoning the, 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 their Jewish covenant, 
but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And those are the Maccabees. They're not going to have it. At this time, Antiochus was already accustomed to appointing his own Hellenized high priest, as I said. And there are, again, factions within the Jewish nation that, again, some who willingly abandoned it and some who obviously remained loyal. But the adversative here, the but, helps to paint the picture that God, not willing to leave his people without a remnant, Despite the growing pro-Hellenist Jews, God had invoked the spirit of Phineas. So if you remember, Phineas was the, 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 the high priest, the son of the high priest who showed great zeal to get rid of those who were willing to abandon their, the covenant at the time of, um, of Baal, when Baal basically said, if you want to get these people to sin, get them to basically submit to a, a false religion, get involved in it. And then they all started sleeping with these, these temple prostitutes within the camp, and then Phineas starts to basically slay them, all those that are compromised. So these brother Maccabees come with, I would say, this spirit of Phineas, and they start basically fighting these Jews and obviously these Greeks. There are times when our faithfulness can only be expressed by radical nonconformity. Verse 33 also reminds us of Daniel and his own wisdom understanding that helped others like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius to know Yahweh. You need people with wisdom. And this is, again, I would say, God raising up those with wisdom saying, we can't submit to this. And as much as we have the Spirit of God as a comfort and teacher, we still need those in whom God has placed his wisdom to come alongside us, to comfort us and teach us. You know, it's one thing to know that God's Spirit is there with you, but it's another thing when someone is saying, yeah, brother, let's go into the fight together. Let's resist together. Let's do this together. It reminded me of 1 Chronicles 12, 32a, where it says this, of Ishakar, when David was, again, at that point where he was about to ascend onto the throne, it says, of, Ish of, of Ishakar, men who had understanding of the times to know is what Israel ought to do. That these men from Ishakar came down to help David come to the throne. Men of wisdom that come alongside the king and said, look, we know what to do. We know how, we, we know how to go about getting this done. We must also believe that God will raise up people who understand what is truly happening. And when this covenant people come under persecution. But Isaiah also reminds us that there are those who like to call conspiracy at the wrong people. Sometimes there are not wise people that rise up. I, come, I came across this scripture in my daily readings over the week, and I, I can't help but mention it here. It's Isaiah 8, and it's 11 to 15. It says, For the Lord God spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, will him you shall honor as holy. Let him, be with your, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. 
and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken away. I mention that because, again, you know, you've been a believer for a minute. You, you meet a lot of people who are going to talk about conspiracies and again, we need to rise up against this, and this is the Antichrist, this is the beast. And I've fallen for some of them. And Isaiah is saying that there are, there, are, there are people in whom the Spirit of God is not in them. But the very simple gospel, the stumbling stone of Jesus Christ, is the very thing that ultimately is the only thing we stand on. And unless that's been challenged, unless that is being provoked, then that's where, we call, that's where we stand our ground. I will, you cannot take Jesus Christ away from me. On that, on that, on that hill I will die. But there are many people who will raise up hills in which you should not die. But just to bring a bit of balance, verse 34 also now seems to allude to the difficulty of the fight. So it says that they were struggling to win against the Greeks. So the fight that the Maccabees took on with the Greeks, um, as many, many thousands lost their lives. Many thousands lost their lives. And those, so those that join, who want to join or ally themselves to them, may be making reference to the Romans. Who are back in the Ptolemies and have within themselves their own axe to grind with the Seleucids. And when the going gets tough, it can be hard to ignore help from someone who states that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Romans helped the Maccabees. And they start to win. However, history also warns us that today's allies can be tomorrow's enemies. You, you just have to look at modern military history, isn't it, to see that? Look at what's going on in Afghanistan. Look at what's happened various places where people have intervened and what initially were their allies now becomes their enemies. There's an interesting account of um, that same thing going on in 2 Kings with Hezekiah as the king and um, Babylon wanted to become an, um, an, an ally to uh, the king in Jerusalem when, when the Assyrian army gets defeated there and then the Babylonians come in this delegation saying, oh yeah, we're really happy with you and you know, we're, you know, we want to support you. Only for Isaiah to come and tell him, who were those people you were entertaining in your court? He said, oh yeah, just a delegation from Babylon. He says, they will come and they, all the things that you've shown them, they're going to be theirs. And lo and behold, obviously in the time of Daniel, it became true. So you've got to be wary. People come along and say, ah, I want to be an ally. <laughs> yeah? For how long? Until the stronger enemy is defeated and gives it, makes it easier for you to arise. We have to choose our allies carefully in life, right? So it says, even the wise will stumble. That need not be their end, as our failures in the face of persecution can lead to a refining of our faith and give us clarity for the future. Now, apocalyptic literature doesn't actually uh, does actually function in this way, where it paints the bleakest picture of the future, 
And at the point where things could not be any worse, when it seems to be a disastrous set of events, come to their fullest fruition, then rebirth, refining happens, a better world, a better situation emerges. That's the way apocalyptic literature works. Worst case scenario leads to a new start. Moving swiftly on, 36 to 39, the Antichrist now. Let me read in your hearing. And the king shall do as he wills, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his father or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his father did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and gifts and stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and he shall divide the land for a price. You know, when we think about the Antichrist, Again, you know, for, for, for people who are kind of similar ages myself, which I won't declare, <laughs> so often we think of, I'll be honest, let's be honest with ourselves, we think of the omen, right? And Damien, and we think that it's going to be this child that you can kind of see is something not quite right with him. You know, never seems to smile or, or only smiles when something particularly nasty has happened. And so often we think that an antichrist, a, a person that is opposed to God or opposed to the rule of Christ, is going to be a despicable type of person as we see them in front of us. That they'll kind of hum with evil. This is the day. And we think that's what's, what, what we're going to hear. I would say to you, I say we need to refine that. And much like the populist leaders that we see, even rising up in our own time, that they can come with a kind of a charm. Sometimes we can see they're not perfect. Again, you know, I, I, I allude maybe even to someone like Trump, who has obvious faults, but to some extent, he offers to some of his people something that they really want. That to the point where they're prepared to ignore all those other flaws. And that's the nature of populist leaders. Is that they can come with a sense of charm and a following that is strong. Think of someone like John Lennon and the song Imagine comes to mind here. You know, the very opening words of that song are heretical for a Christian even to imagine. But the melody and the sincerity in which it comes is like a nice big drop of sugar to help the proposition go down. Imagine there's no heaven. 
So again, the, the assumption is that no heaven is, also means that there is no and no God. It's easy if you try. <laughs> Come on. But that's, that's the nature of Antichrist messages. They don't look overtly evil. From Genesis 3 and the temptations of Christ in the Gospels, we can see that Satan is well-versed in offering us something good on terms sealed with evil. Sealed in evil. And that's what it is. A populist leader will give us something that we really desire that is really good, but on terms that if we really examine them are unacceptable. So it is with the Antichrist who will come and deceive, if possible, even the very elect. In this section, we also see that, he, that, that Antiochus offers incentives that, uh, that the, you know, ultimately, again, remember it's about the prosperity. If you want to prosper in this regime, you need to be with me. Anyone who's not with me ain't going to prosper in this regime. The bribe is a well-established tactic in the arsenal of a despot to nudge, and I use that word on purpose, to nudge people to go against their better judgment. If you want to flourish in business, here's the terms. First Samuel 22.7 And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Those who oppose God's people will offer you bribes. Will the son of Jesse give you what I will give you? Let's move swiftly on. 40 to 45, the end of the Antichrist. At that time, at the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen, with many ships, and he shall come into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and ten thousands of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites, and he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. It shall be, he shall become the ruler of the treasures of gold and silver, and all the precious things, of, precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train, but news from the east and north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and to devote many to destructions. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This final section is somewhat controversial. It appears, basically, that none of this really re relates to Antiochus IV. So this gives us a, a situation... If this is indeed written, as I've noted in when I, when I dealt with chapter 7, if this is indeed written post the events, 
Why has the writer missed the mark here? Antiochus doesn't have this glorious end, you know, in the promised land. He dies in his own land, terribly. So who is this speaking of? So this calls into question the idea that this book was written post of these events. Why would someone who knows the end of these events not write a complete and accurate account of it? However, it is generally accepted by those who do read the book of Daniel as prophetic and apocalyptic literature that Daniel has moved from a near fulfillment to a distant one. The final outcome is that of the last Antichrist who is overwhelmed in his last fits of destruction. And again, if you want to read more about that, I won't read it for you today because we've got to move on. Revelation 16, 12 to 16 talks about this, again, this final pitch within the promised land, which is called the Battle of Armageddon, which seems to fit more accurately into this particular sequence. So that, that idea that what, you, what, you, what is then spoken about the near future now jumps into the far distant future as, again, apocalyptic writing and prophetic writing is accustomed to doing. So how do we apply this? Well, let's summarize because we're coming to the end of Daniel. Let me do this as quickly as I, I possibly can. And looking back at the structure of chapters 2 to 7 in particular, the chapters 2 and 7 speak about the sovereignty of God triumphing over the empires of humanity. Then chapters 3 and 6 speak to the loyalty of believers being, oppre being, being oppressed by aspects of those empires. So we remember the trials of the, um, the boys who were told to, to um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego having to bow before the statue. And Daniel, obviously, in... In, um, under Darius now, having to pray, basically, against the wishes of the king. And there are times where the, 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 the kingdoms basically do become like Antichrist. They don't want you to worship God in the way that you ought to worship God. But this is not to say that governments are evil on a whole. But they are susceptible to evil and to corruption. Chapters 4 and 5 also highlighted the corruptibility, as I've just mentioned, of the heads of state to be anti-God and contrast those with the hum those who humbly submit to God. So we saw that picture of Nebuchadnezzar being humbled by God and him accepting it. And Belshazzar, similarly, in the next chapter, being humbled by God. But then he just basically carries on like, oh, well, let the party continue. These three contrasting chapters elaborate three main themes. God is sovereign even, the most, even over the most impressive civilizations and the most terrifying aspects of them as well. Number two, there is a need for believers to be watchful and loyal to God and the covenant. Though we do not turn our back on the nations in which we are nurtured, that gives us a home. We nonetheless must give our loyalty to the kingdom in which we are heading to. I said, imagine an illustration of if you're planning to emigrate. You want to acclimatize yourself to the new place where you're going to live. You, you might need to learn the language. You might need to start reading up about, well, where is it I'm going? 
What's the customs? What will I have to do differently there? And that's the whole idea of Christians being pilgrims. We're emigrating to somewhere different, and we need to prepare ourselves for that. Third, God will humble the tyrant, even the final Antichrist, no matter how absolute their grip on power is. Believe that there will be an end. Believe that God has got even the most vicious person in his grasp. But what is the purpose of this particular chapter, though? God, I believe, is demonstrating that he does just save from the current trials, but also from the ones in the far future and beyond. I ain't just going to save you now. Again, it's like that promise that Jesus gives. I will be with you until the end of the age. We will know victories. We need to remember that the Bible, reading the Bible as we do today comes with the aid of commentary that enables us to see what the right side of history is. We have to imagine a world in which these things come in very subtle ways. As I said, in our times, where would we have stood? Would we have been, you know, a pro-Antiochus IV? Or would we be with the Maccabees? Maybe the Maccabees look like nutters, right? Religious fanatics. What's wrong with you? The world's become Greek. Stop with this nonsense about Moses and, you know, 1,500 years ago. Let's move with the times. When you start to see it that way, you start to realize what does the right side of history look like today? Who would you stand with? There was a strong reminder throughout Daniel that God's people are going to need his wisdom to guide them through history and their interaction with the Gentile nations. It is good to note that God did not require them to be two different people at the same time. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 talks about being all things to all people, but not becoming, as it were, them. God has given us a mandate to be relatable, for sure. I don't, I don't follow the things that these people follow. Not in the way that they follow them. Being a good citizen does not require them to be consumed into their pagan norms. And this means that being a spiritual person doesn't mean we ignore and write off the world around us. Again, we've got to get that balance, right? We must be salt and light to all those who will listen the Nebuchadnezzars and the Dariuses, and even to those who won't listen, the Belshazzars. It's important to register in our hearts that God will use the empires and superpowers to his benefit. Let me read a short excerpt from Acts. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one. As I said before, 
the expansion of empires throughout history and all the rest of it is very much linked with how God wants to spread the gospel. As they grow in their power and influence, all of a sudden, the gospel grows. There's a reason why the gospel is growing in China. And China is growing in prominence. God wants those people to be connected to the Christians around the world. And they can become an influence upon them and vice versa. God is connecting his church and he's using it through the powers of empire and superpowers. There is no escaping the fact that God's plan is intricately weaved into the fabric of history. Even in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, no detail of that history has been left unturned. Next week we shall look at what the end of history will leave us with as we look at Daniel 12. But let me leave you with John 16. We began with this with, 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 with Pastor B. Let me close with this. John 16, 29 to 33. His, his disciples said, Aha! Now you are speaking plainly. Like our text today is speaking plainly, right? And not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me, and he is with you too. And I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Lord, you speak truth and our truth. And as Daniel began this very chapter, I speak the truth to you. Lord, you speak the truth. You know the end from the beginning. You know all that will ail us. You know all that will, will be a problem to us. Yet, Father, in the face of it, you say, do not be fearful. As Jesus says, I am with you and I have overcome the world. And though we may be down, as it were, Lord, though we may be in that point where it looks like we're losing, what you want to remind us of is the fact that in the end we win. In fact, there's an excitement in the fact that, Lord God, when we lose, because again, as the text reminds us, we're being refined. There are things that we're losing as we, as we make this commitment, as we grow in our commitment to God. And, and, and we're, we're seeing things drop off our lives. We're seeing friends go. We're seeing great opportunities to, again, thrive maybe in business or thrive in a particular area of our lives. And, and Lord, as we're in those tribulations, we're being refined. And you're saying, fine, let it go. Because as Peter reminds us, the Apostle Peter reminds us that those things which are shaken, that cannot be shaken, will remain. And those things that will shake, they will drop out of our lives. And again, Lord, when we think about that concept of, of emigrating, being pilgrims in this land, as they drop off, Lord, you're telling us, leave it, don't worry. 
don't worry. And the glorious thing that, Lord, even the tribulations work for you. Roman 8, 28 reminds us, all things work together for good. And Lord, maybe we're going through something even now. And we're struggling and we're saying, Lord, I'm losing stuff. And this today is reminding us, I know the beginning from the end. And in the end, you win. Or even better, Lord, in the, the prophetic perfect tense. You've won. You've won. Don't be like Lot's wife. Let it go. So Lord, as we see us through difficult times, Lord God, be with us. Thank you that you are with us. You're in the boat with us. Lord, the storms will rage, Lord. Give us courage, Lord, for the fight ahead. Give us the wisdom that we need, Lord God, to see things clearly. Where you are in history, where the right side is. May we grow in confidence, Lord God. Again, these, these, these chapters are written to, to grow our, our, ourselves in confidence. May it do its job. Today we pray in Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.